Jnanantimirandhasya Jnananjana Shalakaya Chakshurun Militam Jnatasmai Shri Gurvinamaha Siddhantut Palasara Nityarasikam Hangsang Vilasatmakam Aodaryakya Sudhamasivagadhanam Vishramba Bhakti Pradam Yacha Yukti Bichakshanam Tvagabido Vaisishta Shaktyasara Vandeham Tripurari Namakayatin Shri Bhakti Vedantinam Namashrishtam Manam Apisachiputra Matrasvarupam Rupam Tasyagrajam Murupurim Maturingoshtavartim Radha Kundam Girivaram Maho Radhika Madhavasham Rapto Yasya Pratita Kripaya Shri Gurungtam Natusmi Namo Mahabadanyaya Krishna Prima Pradayati Krishnaya Krishna Chaitanya Namni Gauritvishenamaha E Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dina Bandhu Jagatpati Gopesha Gopika Kanta Radha Kanta Namostute Tapta Kanchana Gorangi Radhe Vrindavanishuri Rishabhanu Suti Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Vanchakalpa Turubhyascha Kripa Sindhubhyayevacha Patitanam Bhavanibhyo Vaishnavibhyo Namo Namaha Okay, welcome to the final part of our little series on Chapter 3, Bhagavad Gita, and the nature of action and training the mind through action. So I'm going to keep the recap short because I have a fair bit of information to cover, and I want to get into that. I don't want to run too, too, too long if we can avoid that. So... <clears throat> We began, of course, in the first lecture with uh, um, delving into the nature of action itself, what it is, and what the mind is, the ontology of these things, and how how the uh, how the mind is influenced by the body, and how the body influences the mind, um, how the two are connected. And then the second lecture, we went into um, did we do in the second lecture? Uh, it was the major theme in the second lecture was uh, pronunciation and the nature of pronunciation, false and real. And the third lecture was how bhakti to Bhagavan is the perfection of action. And today I wanted to go over the practical implications of all of this. So. We've been talking a bunch of philosophy and theory and whatnot. And so I wanted to um, go into the practicalities of how exactly we do train the mind through action um, beyond just knowing that um, the difference between karma yoga, karma, and bhakti and jnana and whatnot, that, that's all obviously useful information, but how do we how do we put this stuff into practice in our daily lives? So today is going to focus on the practical implications 
for habit formation. Because in the Gita, and later on in this chapter, 30, 36, verse 36, of course, Arjun asks Krishna, what is it that makes us do things that we know are not in our best interest? And this, of course, is a question that everybody will have to grapple with at some point in their life, because I would imagine that everybody at some point in their life, if you haven't already, there will come a time when you have acted even contrary to your intent. Like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to chant this many rounds, or I'm going to get up at this time, or I'm going to not do this, I'm going to not eat sugar or whatever it is. And yet we end up doing that, the very opposite of our intent. And this is uh, a universal problem. It's a universal aspect of the human condition. And Krishna's term for, for his, Krishna's answer to Arjun, the term that he invokes, I think can be a little, um, at least the way it's translated, can be a little tricky to understand. Krishna says it's lost, is that he calls it your, your eternal enemy. And the, the Acharyas have translated lust as the desire for sense gratification, basically. And while that's useful, um, that's, I think we can go further. And that's what I'm endeavoring to do here. So, you know, you may know that, well, lust is a problem. Uh, the desire to enjoy is a problem. But, you know, how do you overcome that? And I think the answer is through habits. Because habits are, they are, um, we are, uh, in our conditioned state at least, we are a, a, a sum total of our habits, positive and negative. And <clears throat> our habits form our identity. We spoke quite a bit in this series about identity and how identity informs our action. So our habits form our identity and vice versa. Our identity determines what kind of habits we'll have. And so in a general sense, one can say that uh, in, the, in the life of a practitioner, which we are, uh, or at least endeavoring to be, uh, sadhana is a, a system of habits that are designed to work synergistically together to bring about a particular result. The result, of course, being bhava bhakti, um, or for one who has bhava, the intensification of bhava into prame. But for those of us who are not there, it's we're still in the sadhana stage. Uh, at least the, the while the the course is go through the, explained the, the the confidence that maintain he will protect in all circumstances that's the core of 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 Sharanagati. but and then the corollary of Sharanagati, if we are surrendering 
to Sri Guru and Sri Krishna, and we are sincere in that endeavor, then we will embrace two of the most fundamental limbs of Sharanagati, which are to accept the favorable, accept that which is favorable to bhakti and reject that which is unfavorable. Now, it's easy to read that in a verse and say, yes, I should do that. But as we know, it's not that easy in practice. And so why? Why is it not that easy? Because we have habits and habits that philosophically speaking, that we have uh, developed and have been in place for millions of births. And so anybody who's ever tried to overcome a bad habit, be it whatever it is, smoking, eating sugar, whatever it is, they know it's that habits have a momentum of their own. They don't just go away when you decide, oh, I'm not gonna do that thing anymore. There's a very good reason for that. And so a lot of what I'm drawing from in, in the modern literature comes from this book right here, Atomic Habits, by this fellow named James Clear. This is a brilliant book. If you don't already have a copy, I highly recommend it because I would say that he has taken a vast amount of liter literature on habit formation and behavior and whatnot and distilled it and condensed it into a single volume that is pretty approachable. It's not that long of a book. It's maybe 300 pages. And there's a huge amount of information in there. That is like, that's the handbook uh, for, for habit formation. If, if you want to, if you're interested in uh, changing yourself for the better, that is a must have, in my opinion. Anyhow, so that's where a lot of what I'm going to be going over comes from. Um, but before that, I mean, it's not like the yogis didn't understand this stuff, but they didn't put it in modern terms and they didn't have, um, they didn't have double-blind studies to uh, substantiate their findings. They, they had, what they did have was generations and generations of practitioners who achieved a particular result based on doing these things. So in the yogic worldview, we could say habits are formed. Well, before we get to that, why don't we, what is a habit? What are habits? And so from, in Atomic Habits, uh, James Clear makes the point that um, he actually quotes another fellow who says that habits are simply reliable solutions to problems in our environment. And he goes on to say that they are mental shortcuts learned from experience. So we may, we may think, well, you know, gee, habits are a problem, but they're actually not because they save us a huge amount of time and effort. Uh, anybody who's ever learned a new skill, which I assume is all of us, <laughs> we didn't all start walking or talking or anything. So, uh, but let's say in your later life, if you want to learn a habit, if you want to learn a skill, you know that in the beginning, the learning curve is extremely steep and uh, there's a huge amount of effort, conscious effort and will involved with establishing or learning this new skill. And, but then over time, let's say you decide to pick up an instrument that you've never played one before. 
there's a huge amount of work and effort involved in just learning the rudiments. And then over time, uh, with practice, and repetition, then the rudiments become second nature, we say in English. Um, we don't have to think about them anymore. In other words, the, we get a certain degree of muscle memory and intellectual understanding of the thing and we can and feeling and then we can uh, refine our or start to focus on other aspects of learning the instrument that we couldn't focus on in the beginning because the rudiments weren't there and then so then the rudiments they become second nature and then other aspects become um we have to work on them consciously and then so then we're back on that and aspect of the of the learning the instrument let's say um, we're back in the effortful conscious conscious effort stage whereas playing scales for example we might be the uh that might already be habitual and we don't have to think about it anymore um so learning goes through these stages always goes through the same stages of learning something is always a conscious effortful process in the beginning and then over time it becomes a habit through repetition and through repeated exposure so and the yoga system and the one of the points that i've been making kind of throughout and it worth it's worth uh, repeating is that the most effective way of training the mind is through engaging the body, i.e. the senses and the mind. And this is why in Patanjali Yoga, for example, we have within the context of, uh, so the Ashtanga Yoga, we're talking about Ashtanga, uh, Patanjali's Ashtanga Yoga as given in the, uh, the Yoga Sutras, the first two uh, limbs of yoga of course, are yama and niyama. So that forms like the uh, the moral context within which yoga is practiced. And then, what is the really the first limb that one practices besides the the do's and don'ts is asana. It doesn't start with samadhi. Samadhi is the goal of, or samadhi is the high end and the most abstract form of the internal work that one does in yoga in order to um in order to destroy one's previous karma so you don't it doesn't start there it starts with the body something that is easy to see what's going on with the body and learning how to control the body is essential in order to be able to sit long enough in order to be able to meditate so it's first through asana one becomes first aware of the body and then through that more aware of the breath and then so then the next limb is pranayama learning how to regulate the breath in such a way that it can starts to concentrate the mind and then from there asana pranayama pratyahar then one then one can start start begin to actually draw the senses away from the sense objects and turn within toward the atma and then from there dharana one can actually begin to concentrate and then dhyan uh, meditation and then samadhi is the prolonged meditation so 
we don't start with samadhi. That's just not possible. You can try, but you'll fail, <laughs> no doubt, because the untrained mind can't can't remain on one point long enough. That's the whole definition of samadhi: is the mind remaining on one point for a given amount of time. And the, the shastras, different shastras, talk about how many, uh, how much time that is. So we begin with the body. All right. So and and so it's all about establishing habits because what we do with the body influences the mind as we've been over and so um, by establishing habits with the body we can train the mind over time and that's what sadhana is about right I mean, so anybody who's been doing bhakti for a while will know that there are things that we do that are favorable to bhakti that are that involve because we are, are doing sadhana with our sadhaka deha with our body our practitioner's body then everything we do involves our body and so we set up our lives in such a way that it's going to be favorable um now of course this is not to say that uh, well, this is all, all on the effort side of things. So there's the other side, it's grace. So we need a combination of the two, of course, in order to, in order to change ourselves. In fact, um, I've noticed you know, in my own experience, we, um, we need to make the effort to change our habits, but we also need to pray for the strength and not just the strength, but the willingness to change. So we may say we want to change, but then we keep doing what we're doing. We may say we want to surrender, and then we keep doing things that are not favorable to bhakti. And this is all due to material conditioning. And sometimes, we, and due to that conditioning, sometimes we don't even want to turn toward Krishna. It's like, yeah, I'm a, uh, you, we may have the, uh, the overall abhiman or identification uh, of a bhakta, but there may be times when we just like uh, you just don't want to don't even want to go there, and so and that's an area. Well, that's where ultimately habits work in our favor. Uh, there's a, a teacher. Uh, there was a teacher of Hatha Yoga named Vanna Scaravelli, an uh, Italian woman who uh, she said something really nice. Was like over time, as you practice yoga, eventually yoga will pick you up by the hair and make you practice. <laughs> Uh, so in a similar way, in other words, what she's saying is that our, by doing it habitually, becoming habituated to doing it, eventually, even when you don't want to do it, the habit will make you do it. And so that's a good kind of habit to have, is that even when we're unwilling to practice, we get up early, we chant our rounds, we you know, do all the, execute the limbs of bhakti. Um, and so it's, it's kind of, uh, it's useful to know that as Mahaprabhu tells Sanatana Goswami, the conditioned soul cannot revive his Krishna consciousness by his own effort. So we're, we engage in effort, but we do so within the context of a prayer to Bhagavan to help, 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 help. <laughs> That's all we can do is ask for help. And then at the same time, of course, you know, God helps those who help themselves. So um, that's why we're learning about 
things like habit formation so that we can do our part at least knowing that ultimately the result is up to Bhagavan. It's not really on our shoulders. I mean, we can decide to do this or that, the other thing, but Bhakti won't necessarily come to us just because we want it to, right? We must, um, as Guru Maharaj likes to say, we make the effort to invoke grace. So an important point about habits, uh, a lot of times when people think about habits, they think about, well, well, these, I'm going to become like a robot. Uh, where's my spontaneity? But as anyone who's read Srila Prabhupada would know, will know that he's, he, he called the, the four, the four regs, as he called them, the, the four regulative principles, he called them the regulative principles of freedom. And James Clear in his book says the exact same thing. He said, habits do not restrict freedom, they create it. So what in common devotee terminology is being regulated? Um, well, it could appear to be boring without variety or whatnot. It's actually the key to going deeper in any endeavor whatsoever, what to speak of bhakti. I mean, without consistency, you're not going to get better at anything except being inconsistent. <laughs> um, I mean, if you want to uh, become good at, uh, or let's say you want to become fit and uh, well, you got to do that. You got to exercise regularly. It's not like you can exercise once a month and you're going to be fit. It's not going to happen. <laughs> um, we're not going to become good at chanting the holy name if we only chant, you know, once a week. That's why we're advised to do these things daily. Anything that's important in life, we're advised to do on a daily basis. And so in the same way that we wouldn't, generally speaking, uh, avoid eating, <laughs> something we, we're pretty much usually right on, right on time, right on schedule for that. So uh, we consider that's pretty important. Well, other things are really important too, or at least they should be if we're sadhikas. And so um, how to make, how to make uh, those things that we, that we say are important, how to make those things important in our lives. In other words, how to actually act on them every day. So um, James in his book goes into a huge amount of detail um, and of course, we're only going to give a, a broad, broad overview of it today. <clears throat> and he gives a lot of background, uh, scientific a background from the scientific modern uh, psychological findings on how exactly habits are formed. And uh, there are four, he lays out four uh, aspects of it. Cue, craving, response, and reward. So the cue is noticing something like the classic example you could say would be you're driving down the road and you see a billboard, an ad for uh, whatever. And then so then an ad for a food, a billboard with food, I guess this would probably be uh, more relevant to America because I think American advertising is just so ubiquitous that it's hard to avoid maybe not not be quite the same in other countries, but 
anyhow, let's say you're on the internet and you're on Facebook or whatever, and you see an ad for something and suddenly you have a craving. And then the, so the cue and the craving, that is the, uh, the, um, what clear calls the, the problem phase. And then the other two response and the reward, those are the, the problem solving phase. So the cue and the craving, the cue is the signal that predicts a reward. So we see a, a picture of some tasty meal. We're hungry. Oh, so then that, that cue, seeing that it predicts the reward of having our hunger satisfied. And so then the craving is the motivational force behind all habits. So without craving, we would do nothing. And this is what happens with people who, who's, um, I think they have some sort of brain damage where their dopamine circuit no longer functions and they no longer have cravings and no longer want to do anything. And they will, they will literally just starve to death because they don't care. <laughs> now that's obviously an extreme example. Uh, but to, to know how these things work is pretty useful because, because um, then you can get some, uh, get a handle on it, see it in action and decide more consciously how you want to act in the moment. So then the craving drive us, drives us to a response. And the response is the actual habit, whether thought or action. And then the reward, of course, is um, generally speaking, they, what their rewards are generally about, they are, tend to be short-term. In other words, they deliver contentment and relief from craving, in, in Clear's words. Deliver contentment and relief from craving. So that's very interesting. And that says a lot in itself, because if we have a, a craving, we, 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 we see something or we think about something and suddenly we have a craving for something. And then we're driven to fulfill that craving just to do away with the craving. <laughs> Now that, of course, is not, or it can be, as we know, an extremely unhealthy cycle. So this is the cycle, and it always goes in this order. Cue, craving, reward, response, reward. Cue, craving, response, reward. It just goes like that in a cycle. And so just knowing that in itself can be hugely helpful because as we're going throughout our day, we can see, oh, bam, oh, that was a cue. Now I have a craving. Oh, what do I do with that? And then, then you can you're then you you're given some leverage to make a choice, but without even being aware of this process, you're just going through the process. Next thing you know, you're you know, oh, I mean this is how advertising has worked for uh, as long as it's been around several generations, where you know, people are uh, uh, cravings are created by putting cues out in the environment, in in uh, in in um in uh, repetitive ways, especially, like uh, we're all, I'm sure, quite familiar with how advertising is just, you know, you see the same ad for the same product many, many, many times with the idea that eventually, one of those times, it's actually gonna hook you when you're in a, a weak moment or a less conscious moment. And the next thing you know, you're, <laughs> you're buying that product. 
So advertisers know this, they know how this cycle works and they know how to exploit it, which leads me to believe that uh, they are, advertising is a, uh, most cases are probably a highly unethical, to put it mildly, unethical business, but whatever, that's another discussion. So rewards, they teach us which actions are worth remembering in the future. So if any part of this four-part cycle is weak, then a habit won't be formed. In other words, if you have a, you see a cue and you have a craving and you respond to it, but the reward isn't all that great, you're not going to do it again. It doesn't matter. So then you forget about that thing. You go on to something else. So, or if there are no cues, then it's very difficult to establish a, a particular habit because you don't even think about it. There's no, there's no craving. There's no response. So, Mr. Clear outlines four laws. What he calls four laws of uh, habit formation. And those are, uh, first law is to make it obvious. And this, this corresponds with the Q phase. So to make it obvious means to uh, raise conscious awareness, bring, bring the thing into conscious awareness. And he, and this, so the, the, the laws as he outlines them, these are for establishing positive habits that we want to establish. And then he also inverts each of these laws in order to, uh, <clears throat> to outline, or actually to more than just outline, to detail how we can um, do away with negative habits. So I've got some examples of, of both, or, or just we're going to go over both sides of it. So there's, there's, that's the thing that, that we should understand overall, that there is the necessity for establishing positive habits and for doing away with negative habits. And so, of course, you know, negative habits are what gets in the way of us doing our sadhana, it gets in the way of us, um, let's say the sadhana are the positive habits we want to establish. And then the things that get in the way of that, that arise out of our conditioning are the negative habits that we need to uh, train ourselves out of in order to be able to take advantage of the positive habits. And so uh, Prabhupada gives a really nice example of how sadhana works and in particular how chanting works. He gives the example of a, if you have a cup filled with ink and you start to pour milk into the cup, eventually, it'll take a long time, but eventually all the ink will be pushed out and it will just be filled with milk. So the he's using that he used that uh, analogy to illustrate that the heart our heart in our conditioned state is like the cup the heart is a vessel and it's filled with darkness tamas and rajas and even sattva and all the it's filled with the gunas it's filled with material desire and anarthas and all these things we start pouring in the milk of the holy name and it displaces these things and so <clears throat> excuse me the point being that with 
with um, consistent application of positive habits than negative habits and negative uh, traits and, and characteristics that we have will be pushed aside. But it's useful to do, I think, a little bit of both. If, um, so, um, so the first law is to make it obvious. And what that means, of course, is to make the cues for our positive habits visible in our life. Um, and so in that way, we, um, <clears throat> we can more easily make the decision to engage in those habits. Because like I said earlier, if the cue isn't there, then we're not gonna engage in, and we're not gonna crave to do it. And we're not gonna crave the reward and we're not going to engage in the response and therefore we won't get the reward. And then, so then the habit won't be established. So if you make it obvious, um, in order to do that, I think the essence of that is to, to make, um, the cue is about the thing coming to our conscious awareness and uh, conscious awareness depends on being present in the moment. And I think one of the most effective methods of being present is, as Shama Sundar Prabhu has been lecturing on, um, the breath. Because why? The breath is always in the present. It's always flowing in the present. And it, it brings us immediately back to the body. The body's always in the present. And so by training uh, a simple breath awareness, then we can remain rooted in the moment. And it can also give us uh, um, equanimity. In, in other words, some uh, enough detachment that we can see things in a balanced fashion. And this is trained in the yoga system uh, to reflect back on that. Um, by becoming aware of the breath, what the breath is doing during asanas, then one can start to uh, move into difficult asanas with some, um, as Patanjali defines asana, sukham and stiram. Sukham being pleasant and stiram being steady. So with breath awareness, we can start to move into these asanas with some steadiness and making the breath steady, the body becomes steady, the mind becomes steady. And so um, I would say that while it's not a, a not necessarily a limb of bhakti, definitely not, <laughs> it is a part of a yogic practice, um, breath awareness in general, uh, not necessarily breath training, breath work, although I wouldn't say that's a bad thing. I'm sure Sham has done an, uh, an excellent job of pointing out why that is. Um, Breath awareness is a very useful tool, let's put it that way. And so by being present, we, we, we can make our intended habits obvious. And uh, Clear also recommends to, uh, in that regard, to um, use what he calls implementation intentions. So you say to yourself, I will do X at this specific time in this specific location. So 
if one wants to establish a habit of exercising, let's say, I will go to the gym at 4 p.m. And then the location, you know, location, wherever the gym is. Or, and so by, by giving, the, giving it those specifics, then we have a much greater chance of actually doing the thing because it's, if we just say, oh, I want to exercise regularly, there's not enough specific information there for us to latch onto and actually act upon. It'll never happen. So, but if we make it specific, if we put it in our calendar, then the chances of it happening actually increase dramatically. The second law, uh, well, before I get into that, I should say the inversion of the first law is to make it invisible. So that means we remove the cues of bad habits from our environment. So let's say we have a habit of uh, pigging out on, on uh, chocolate chip cookies. Well, <laughs> the simple solution to that is don't have them in the house. Simple as that. And then you're not going to pig out on them because they're just not there. You're not going to see them. You're not going to get the craving for them. Or if you see an ad or you see a picture of one in a, in a magazine or on the, uh, while you're browsing on the internet or something, you may have a craving, but you don't have them at hand. So it's like you can't act on it. So that, that gets into also uh, uh, one of the later laws where environment design. This is anybody who's spent time in an ashram will recognize a lot of these things, how, they, how this works. So the second law, as per atomic habits, is make it attractive. So this corresponds to the craving phase of this cycle. And so if it's not attractive, then we're not going to do it. Simple as that. If it is attractive, then we're going to do it. And so how do you make it attractive? Well, he recommends doing to pair an action you want to do with an action you need to do. So let's say you want to get some more exercise. And let's say you need to deliver, you need to send some mail. So instead of driving to the post office, you walk. Well, that's pretty handy or something like that. I'm sure that there's any number of ways that this, these things can be adapted to our lives. Another thing he recommends is join a culture where your desired behavior is the norm. Well, as devotees, we know about that. It's called sadhu sangha. <laughs> Join a culture where your desired behavior is the norm. So you surround yourself with people who are also doing the things that you want to do, like chanting the name and doing kirtan and studying the shastra and discussing the philosophy as we're doing now. So we are already taking part in that. Here we are. So that's a very, very, very useful thing. And he also mentions to uh, things like uh, create motivation rituals, um, like doing something you enjoy immediately before engaging in a difficult habit. So let's say you want to exercise. Well, find something that you can do immediately before that that um, is pleasurable so that you we start to associate the difficult habit with pleasant state. And that's as we see that um, in the same way 
sadhana is synergistic. In other words, all these different aspects of the sadhana add up to a, a whole that is bigger than some of its parts. So habit formation is like that. They, each aspect plays into the others and they all form a, a comprehensive whole, which brings me to the point which um, if, if it hasn't become clear yet throughout this series, I'll make the point now that the equanimity that Krishna is advocating in the third chapter to Arjun, or the equanimity, I should say, that he advocated in the second chapter that gives rise to Arjun's question, which gives rise to this whole chapter, that, that yogic mindset, that focus, that concentration, vyavasayatmika bhuti. Concentration and focus and equanimity of mind is not something, it's not an isolated thing. It's, it requires, in, in other words, requiring, uh, excuse me, uh, training the mind, controlling the mind overall, the mind and the senses, is a lifestyle. That's the point. It's a lifestyle. It's not, you don't just control the mind in some isolated way and then it's all connected to how we live, every aspect, our diet, our sleep habits, what we do during the day and whatnot. And so, um, like Krishna says in the Gita, how we, how we walk influences how we sit, our meditation and how we sit influences how we act in the world. So it's, it's a, the yoga, the lifestyle, yoga is a lifestyle in general. And bhakti is being a yoga, it is no different. So, the inversion of the second law is to make it unattractive. So, uh, some ways that Clear suggests doing that is to. Well, first, he says, highlight the benefits of avoiding your bad habits. That's a good thing to do. You meditate on, if I don't do this thing, what is the benefit I'm going to get? If I don't eat this bag of chips, then I'm not going to put on weight and uh, whatnot. Or, you know, if I don't eat this jar of candy, then, um, then my teeth won't rot out of my head. Um, and then from the yoga literature, of course, uh, from none other than the Gita itself, <clears throat> we can contemplate the faults of negative habits. In Krishna's words, uh, now he was referring that in that he uses that phrase to refer to the, the uh, material life in general and all the things that are commonly associated with that. But I think we can apply that very effectively here. Repeated contemplation of the negative outcomes of a bad habit and that can be so you know if i eat this candy it's gonna rot my teeth out of my head and i'll be you know spending uh i'll be subjected to pain and uh and uh economic uh pressure to have them fixed or if i if i uh Anyway, you get the point. Um, it's easy to come up with uh, examples of you know, whatever negative habit we have. If I, if I spend, you know, uh, away from bhakti, time away from the shastra, and not that, you know, in the mind with a relevant that is just going to get in the way of practicing. 
So it's pretty easy to see how to apply. Now the third law, and this is where, this is the response phase. And so, and this is where we actually implement or we actually, we're doing, physically doing the thing. And there's a really nice saying by, uh, I think, uh, Tony Robbins. He says, repetition is the mother of skill. Now, anybody who has learned how to do any kind of skill, as I was mentioning earlier, knows that it's all acquired through repetition, repeated exposure, doing it again and again and again and again, ad nauseum, until it's no longer ad nauseum, until it's actually pleasant, uh, assuming it's a good habit. Um, like, for example, if we chant every day, in the beginning, of course, it's not very pleasant, generally, because, well, because our material conditioning is, has us conditioned in ways to, uh, that, are, that we are turned away from Bhagavan. And so by bringing Bhagavan into our life, there can be some, some pain there, or we're doing it in a, doing it in a regulated way, which means uh, if you're doing something in a regulated way, sooner or later, you will be doing that thing at a time you don't want to be doing it. That just like if you've got a, you know, people who have jobs, anybody who's ever had a job, which is probably most of us, uh, knows that there will be times when the last thing you want to do is get up and go to that job. But there's a specific time you got to be there. So you go through the motions and you get there anyway, even though you didn't want to. And eventually, maybe with time and practice, assuming the job is not completely horrible, then you actually start to like it because just not necessarily for the job per se, although that's obviously great if, if, if the job is pleasant, but there is a, uh, in, in karma yoga or in the yogic worldview, the yogic mindset, I should say, um, we seek to detach ourselves from the work that we do and to find intrinsic pleasure within whatever it is we're doing. Um, the author uh, of the book, Flow, uh, Mihai, he uses the word autotelic. Autotelic means deriving pleasure from within or intrinsic pleasure from the activity itself rather than from the result we're going to get from engaging in the activity. So autotelesis, I think, is one of the defining char characteristics of a yogic mindset. In other words, finding contentment, finding, finding pleasure within whatever it is we do, whether it's washing the dishes or washing the floor, things that a lot of people would consider beneath themselves or would consider something to just get out of the way so that they can get down to something more important. And all of the meditative traditions teach this, just being present and being, being happy, deriving pleasure with everything we do based on the idea that, well, it's part of your life, so you might as well enjoy it, right? I mean, you gotta wash the dishes, otherwise what's your alternative? You're just gonna let them stack up in the kitchen stack up in the sink until they reach the ceiling and you know it's like where's the where's the there's no 
no intelligence in that. And so it's like, if something, if it's something that you've got to do anyway, well, going into it and just, you know, griping about it in your mind, or even worse, griping about it externally, letting that come out your mouth. I mean, that's like, what is the point in that? And so yoga teaches us to, to approach those things that we have to do anyway, with some, at least some, some equanimity or at least some some balance and you may not like it but at least you know don't don't necessarily dislike it either be neutral at the very least be neutral and i think at a at a at a more developed stage we can find pleasure in these things so making it easy repetition what we what we repeat what we repeat we become. So as I mentioned in the beginning, that we are the sum total of our habits. I mean, really, that's that's what we are. And so at a very basic level. And so if we want to be a, a decent person, then we need to have good habits. And so in order to do this, in order to make it easy, this is where we uh, create an environment we design our environment intentionally where doing the right thing is as easy as possible. So this means we want to reduce the friction associated with good habits. So if we're trying to establish a good habit, obviously, if we never think about doing it, in other words, the cue isn't present, or actually doing the habit is difficult, too difficult, then it won't overcome the inertia that we have in another direction. And so uh, as human beings, uh, evolutionarily speaking, we are um, conditioned through evolution to take the path of least resistance because that is how we survive. In a world that is difficult to live in as the material world is, we living organisms find ways to minimize their energy expenditure because if they don't they die so <laughs> that tendency that, that evolutionary necessity that evolutionary evolutionary fact tends to work against us especially in modern society where uh <laughs> where uh let's say in America anyway, we have an obesity epidemic because life has become so easy and calories have become so so ubiquitous and so easy to acquire that the, the natural innate tendency to, to minimize our energy expenditure works against us. Whereas in a, say, a hunter-gatherer situation, uh, most of your time was spent searching for food or hunting or either gathering or hunting. And you might walk anywhere from 10 to 30 miles in a day, every day. And uh, you really only sat around and were lazy after a successful hunt and your belly's full. Other than that, there, then, then when there may be times when uh, hunts haven't been successful for a while or a game is scarce or whatever. And, and uh, you go days sometimes without eating. 
that's a very different environment then. And so in that, in that environment, it makes sense that you want to minimize your energy expenditure in order to increase your chances of survival. But now in a, in a so-called civilized society as we have, then now we have uh, the necessity of going to the gym to expend some energy in a purposeful manner so that we can uh, avoid the um, avoid the, the negative repercussions of a sedentary lifestyle. Uh, so anyhow, creating an environment where doing the right thing is as easy as possible, designing our environment and designing our lifestyle in such a way that um, we can engage in the limbs of bhakti. And so the inversion, of course, would be make it difficult. And in that, and that means to increase the friction associated with bad habits. In other words, we increase the steps between you and your bad habits. So if, for example, you like to eat chips, okay, nothing wrong with that. But let's say, you know, you eat one chip and the way they're designed with the salt and everything, the way they're flavored, they're, they're, they're designed to like eat more than you actually should at one time. But, you know, you don't want to necessarily cut them out of your life entirely. Okay, fine. So let's say you've got a house with a garage. Or, you, in other words, you put the chips somewhere in your house where they're not easy to get. Like up in a high cabinet out in the garage. So you have to get up on a ladder and get the things. So, yeah, they're there if you want them. But you got to expend a little more effort to go after them and get them. And so... That way, it's not like if they're sitting on the table, if you got if they're sitting on a bowl in front of you, uh, you can easily just sit there and mindlessly munch them without even realizing it. Next thing you know, the whole bag is gone. But if you actually have to think about, have the, the you think about, oh, I want some chips. Yeah, okay, craving. And then you get up, you have to get up, go out into the garage, put shoes on, get in, go in the garage, get a ladder, go up on top the ladder open the cabinet and then get them uh, chances are you're not going to do that as often it's just not going to be worth it <laughs> so that's one way to design our environment such that it works for us so that we don't just get drawn into the cycle of chasing down a negative habit and one of the uh one of the rules that uh, clear mentions is when you start a new habit, it should take less than two minutes to do. So let's take exercise, for example. Uh, he, in fact, he he's, uh, talks quite a bit about that particular habit in the book. And he says in the beginning, in the first, at first, you don't even exercise. First, in order to establish the habit of exercise, first, you put on your exercise clothing. And that's it. That's it. Done. You do that every day. You establish that, just putting on the clothing. Then you actually start to exercise in little little doses, little doses. Um, or let's say, instead of, in other words, it's very easy to think, well, I want to, I should exercise, and so then we come up with a plan, or we go on the internet and look, uh, look up uh, exercise routines, and they're an hour long and whatnot. And yet we're out of shape, and our our present situation is uh, such that our stamina level is such that we can really only do ten minutes of exercise. Well. We shouldn't even do that. We should do one minute. 
one minute. Just start with it, like make it ridiculously easy. And the reason he calls his book Atomic Habits is because everything is built from atoms. They're very, very tiny, but there's so much power within an atom. So um, by starting off very, very, very small, uh, we can gradually, gradually build on that. And by starting off small and starting off easy like that, then as we, uh, as our stamina and our attention span becomes longer and our ability to focus remain, uh, grows, then gradually, gradually, gradually over time, we can increase the habit or we can, once the habit is established we can gradually increase. And so the fourth law, make it satisfying. And of course, this corresponds to the reward cycle, the reward aspect of the cycle, I should say. And so <clears throat> he says, you want to give yourself an immediate reward when you have completed your habit. Now, this could take any number of forms, of course. Uh, let's say you've got a, uh, you wanna, you wanna do the exercise habit. And so earlier in the cycle or in the, in the other, one of the other laws, what is that? Uh, oh yeah, in the second law, do something you enjoy immediately before exercising. Right, and then after you exercise, you give yourself some sort of reward. So let's say you want to have a, a a cup of herbal tea. That's your reward after your exercise, and then doing something that you enjoy before it. And so by by uh, bookending, so to speak, the habit with these the doing something pleasant before and then uh, giving yourself a reward, then the chance of you doing the habit increases a lot. And so, and I think uh, I had an observation. I made an observation some time ago, just thinking about the flow state. And um, it seems like, it seems to me that pretty much what people are after universally is not necessarily happiness per se, it's more the flow state. Because the flow state is a combination of happiness and absorption in the thing that we're doing at the moment. Uh, flow is an action where we forget ourselves. And so that, that's what people are after. They just wanna like, huh, I mean, how, how, how uh, it's quite pleasant to be so absorbed in something uh, that you forget yourself totally. And so, that flow state, of course, can only be entered into when our mind is steady enough to pay attention to the thing long enough to do it. So, as I said, this all kind of uh, feeds into one another and whatnot. So, um, let's say, let's take the example of Japa. Um, what we're trying to do there is enter into a flow state. Um, we're not necessarily trying, at least in the beginning, all right, I guess I should say our goal when we chant Japa is not to uh, experience bliss. Bliss from chanting, let's say, comes as a byproduct of being absorbed in it. So our goal is to enter the flow state 
to be to forget ourselves in the chanting. Uh, in other words, to forget our conditioned self. We can I mean, chanting involves focusing on our true self, the atma. Um, and the more we can do that, then the more the more flow we will experience, and the more um, bliss as a byproduct will come about. And by experiencing that flow state, then that habit will become highly satisfying, addictive even. I mean, look at people, you can find, you can see examples of people who engage in flow all over, business people, athletes in particular. They're, they're, why is it, why is it that their you know, rock climbing is so absorbing? Why is it that skiing down a hill is so absorbing? Why is it that surfing is so absorbing? Or why, why is it that these people are attached to these things? It's because the flow state is what they're after. And so the yogic mindset, the yogic worldview advocates, well, why not cultivate that flow state in everything we do? And therefore, you don't need a particular activity in order to enter into it. The yogi can enter into flow state washing the dishes or folding his laundry or washing her car or whatever it is. In other words, some people can only experience happiness when they're doing things, doing particular activities that they're attached to and that they like. Whereas the yogic mindset is to experience that regardless of what one is doing. It's a very useful, um, very useful uh, skill to cultivate. And of course, the inversion of the fourth law is to make it unsatisfying. And so, some ways that clear suggests we can do that is to get an, get an accountability partner. So someone who will monitor our behavior and uh, hold us to account and say, oh, you slipped on that one. Uh, or um, uh, another, another uh, suggestion he has is make the costs of your bad habits public and painful. <laughs> So let's say um, if every time we do a particular thing, we will pay our spouse so much money. And if it's an amount that's meaningful, well, it's going to add up very quickly. And so very quickly, the pain of, of engaging in that habit will be such that we will stop. You know, if, if we say, you know, every time I... If I, if I, every time I sleep in past my alarm, I pay you $10. Well, that habit's going to evaporate very quickly, right? Because, wow, you know, that's going to get expensive. And so, because the, uh, because the way the human mind is wired, we, um, it is more powerful to lose something than to gain something. We are more risk averse than we are uh, opportunity seeking, generally speaking. And again, that goes back to the evolutionary necessity of staying alive. So that being the case, we, we prefer to, uh, the idea of, of, of let's say losing money, uh, spending money on a bad habit, 
is going to be very compelling, let's just say. So to recap, sadhana. So sadhana, how, do, how, do, how does all this apply to us as sadhakas? Well, sadhana, as I said, is a system of habits, synergistic system. Um, and synergy, synergy means that the, the parts work together to uh, influence and to, to, um, uh, to uh, enhance one another. And so, in other words, if we get up early, that's going to have a positive effect. And if we get up early and we do get up early and then we're set up, we have the time before work to, let's say if we're in, most of us are in the situation where we do have to go to jobs. So get up early enough so that we can actually sit and quietly, we either we, we can worship our deity if that's what we do, or we sit and chant our japa, study the shastra. And so that is gonna set your day up completely differently than if you get up five minutes before you have to leave, throw your clothes on, rush out the door. Uh, mind is in a completely different state than if you have been up and you've chanted, you've been up in the Brahma Mahurta in particular, chanted uh, Sri Harinam, and chanted your mantra and uh, read some, some uplifting content from Shastra then your mind isn't going to be in a completely different state and you're going to face your day in a different way than you would have in the opposite uh, scenario. So uh, one, uh, one really useful um, graphic that's in, included in this book is uh, decision trees. So you have one decision and a point of decision starts here and you can make a good decision or a bad decision. And then each one of those, there's another decision point. And then you can make a good or bad. And so and it ends up on the top or on the right-hand side of the thing is on the top is a good day and on the bottom is a bad day. So you make a series of bad decisions, you have a bad day. You make a series of good decisions, make a good day. And then if you make some good decisions in the morning, and then later on you have some bad decisions, you have a mediocre day. So that alone, uh, that that knowing that our day is going to consist of these critical periods when we are we have to make this, make a decision between one thing or another which will either move us toward in our in the context of sadhana move us toward nishta naishtiki bhakti or move us away from it. Now in the moment it can be really hard to have that. Uh, awareness that that's actually what we're deciding between because our cravings and whatnot tend to make us give us tunnel vision on, on that particular thing but it, if we can keep that keep that uh, framework this, this decision tree framework in mind so I find it very useful because oh you make a decision the alarm goes off and it's dark out and we can decide either to stay in bed or to get up okay well Let's say we decided to get up. Oh, good. That's moving toward a good day. Then at a certain point, we have another decision. Do I chant or go on the internet? Oh, chant. Oh, further toward a good day. And then so on and so forth. And uh, breakfast time, do I eat a donut or do I eat uh, fruit? Whatever. So 
these decisions they ramify they 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 each one they split off and then they they have effects throughout our day uh, so i think that's a as i said a useful way of looking at things that there are going to be critical moments in every single day where one decision one decision won't ruin the entire day but let's say the first decision of the day to get up early or to not that's going to affect the entire day and that's going to make it harder to have a good day because the rest of the day you're kind of playing catch up. So let's say you didn't get up early and you didn't chant, you have to go to work and everything. Oh, I'll chant when I get home. Yeah, well, chances are when you get home, that's the last thing you want to do. You're tired, you just want to, you know, eat something, have a shower or whatever. So, and this is why sadhana uh, is recommended doing the things that are important to us Yes, the things that are important to us should be done, if at all possible, early in the day. That way they're done. And then whatever happens the rest of the day, at least, at least the things that are most important are done. Business people will say the same thing. Attend, don't attend to what is, um, in other words, don't, don't be putting out fires. Do what, is, do what is truly important. And then regardless, uh, in other words, working down your working down your to do list is one thing, but doing the things that are truly, truly important that that might even negate the necessity of the do, of the to do list altogether. That's what we really should be focusing on, putting most of our time there. Anyhow, so that's all I have. I've gone a bit over time. I see that, and if there are any questions, I'm happy to entertain them. Um, if not, then we'll wrap it up. Just wanted to thank you very much for this series. It was very, very nice and very practical and useful mm -hmm. friendly. So as I love chips, I'm going to follow some of your advice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And like I said, uh, again, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. Um, I know Guru Nishta has a copy of it too, and he's uh, put some of those advices to use in his life, and he's told me about it. So um, considering that habits basically govern our lives, every aspect of them, I would say it makes it would be time well spent and money well spent to learn how they work. Cool. Thank you. And there is a comment in the chat from Sarada if you want to read it. Okay. So, uh huh. Right, right, right. Yeah, he did give a, a whole series on this. Yes. Oh, it helps us think about our identity as sadhikas. Yes, exactly. Well, that's something that I addressed earlier in the series, that um, if we identify ourselves as a sadhaka, then uh, or our, the overarching point was, as we identify, we will act. And I gave the example, if we identify ourselves as a parent, then there's going to be naturally a set of actions that flow from that without really having to think about it much. Um, and so likewise, if we identify as a sadhaka, then yes, there will naturally be a series of actions that will flow from that. 
which are defined, of course, in the beginning as doing those things that are favorable to bhakti and not doing the things that are unfavorable. Yes, you're welcome. Okay, well, if that's it, then, oh, Connor Ram. Can you hear me? I can. Connor Ram here. Thank you for, thank you for the nice class. I, I always like that, the verse from Bhagavad Gita that you were talking about, about the nature of advertising while contemplating the objects of the senses, one develops attachment for them. I thought that the, the madmen or the advertisers that it's Mad Street or whatever. They must have found that first and, and understood it very thoroughly. Because all, like yeah. all these things they pop up in our life, they know I'm interested. You know, whatever I Google search, they know what I want. And they're they're pumping it in, in on overdrive, so to speak, because of the technology. But I, I always... Like yeah, the algorithms, yeah. That, that concept as well. I have to be careful. Yeah, I mean, modern advertising, exactly. you can think so of... They know, like, oh, he likes this and that and the other. Yeah. Well, for that, we have to thank uh, Edward Bernays, who was the, uh, I think he was the son-in-law of, yeah. of um, Sigmund Freud. So Bernays took Freud's insights into the psychology of the human mind, and he basically single-handedly created the entire advertising industry out of that, which is a pretty crappy thing to do if you think about it. Like, let's find out what people are, where they're vulnerable, and exploit that so we can sell them stuff. I mean, anyway, that's pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. Question, questionable ethics at best. Yeah. But um, I also I just wanted to make a comment that there is a there's a a song title called A Design for Life that mm -hmm. always stuck out to me um, by a group called the, the Manic Street Preachers, which I had identified with it at one point in time. But um, but I always thought that was nice. You know, we we do have to. Sadhana and, and becoming a, a Krishna Bhakta, we really do have to design our life in a particular way. It has to be, it has to be intentional. Mm -hmm. No, because mm -hmm. like until I, I don't know if there's a way to do it unintentionally. I don't think we could accidentally become no. an advanced bhakta and reach no. Krishna. No way. We have to design our life and and and, uh, and do these things on purpose. And um, so anyway, I just like I like what I like your uh, your approach to it. I'll have to check out the Atomic Habits. Well, okay, so to that point, uh, you know, there's, there's the, um, let's say, to use the analogy of, of playing an instrument, right? Everybody wants to be at the stage where they can just improvise and play anything that comes into their mind and whatever, but they have to go through the stage of learning the rules and doing the tedious, tedious, tedious work of learning the scales and, and developing the muscle memory and whatnot. So in the context of bhakti, the same idea as we want to be in the stage where bhakti is effortless. Well, that's, you know, asakti and bhava bhakti. You don't have to think about it anymore. That's just what you're doing. But in order to get there, well, you got to do the scales. <laughs> so, you know, uh, that's where most of us are at is in the, the doing the heavy lifting of that beginning work where you have to, you have to put in the conscious effort in order to get to the point where it becomes effortless. You know, and that comes after, you know, much later so it's like yeah focusing on the effort well the, that's the thing again become because we are conditioned through evolution to 
avoid effort if we can, then of course the, the natural uh, response is, oh shit, I don't wanna do that. <laughs> you know, that's too much work. Sounds like work. Yeah, we don't, you know, we don't wanna work if we have to. But you know, you're right. There is no, I don't, I, I don't believe unless a person, I mean, I don't believe that there is a possibility of attaining nishta without going through that effortful stage. That's not possible. Yeah. Anyway, thank you. Sounds okay, good. well, yeah, thank you folks for attending and uh, sorry we went over time. Um, I'm glad, uh, glad to hear that some folks got some got some use out of it, and I hope to be uh, doing another series at some point on something. I'm not sure what that is yet until Maharaj uh, throws some questions at me. Anyway, thank you all. Dandavats. Sriman Chitta Hari Prabhu Ki Jai. Hari Bol.